Good morning. Let's see what the Word of God says to us this morning. Oh, wait a sec. I'm reading from Matthew 7, 1 through 11, the Amplified Version, because I speak in the Amplified Version. Do not judge and criticize and condemn others unfairly with an attitude of self-righteous superiority as though assuming the office of a judge so that you will not be judged unfairly. For just as you hypocritically judge others when you are sinful and unrepentant, so will you be judged. And in accordance with the standard of measure used to pass out judgment, judgment will be measured to you. Why do you look at the insignificant speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice and acknowledge the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me get that speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, play actor, pretender. First get the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give that which is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before pigs. For they will trample under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Ask and keep on asking, and it will be given to you. Seek and keep on seeking, and you will find. Knock and keep on knocking, and the door will be open to you. For everyone who keeps on asking receives, and he who keeps on seeking finds. And to him who keeps on knocking, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you, if his son asks for bread, will instead give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will instead give him a snake? If you, then, evil and sinful by nature as you are, know how to give good and advantageous gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven, perfect as he is, give what is good and advantageous to those who keep on asking him? Well, good morning, everybody. This is a very special weekend. As Kerwin mentioned, we've got a lot of great guests. I've got two sister-in-laws and a brother here this morning, which I'm just thrilled to have our family here. And then we've got this group of young people with us this morning that is so refreshing. And so I was thinking about you all being here this weekend and the Asbury revival that's going on right now. It reminded me that, you know, if you look at the history of our country, from the First Great Awakening to the Second Great Awakening to the missions movement to the first Asbury revival in the 70s to all the times that God brings about revival, it starts with young people. It starts with young people. And I want you guys to know this morning, you know, you guys here hosted by the Humphreys, led by Chase Dewey, great young minister, you have people who believe in you and we believe in you. You can feel like when you're in high school, you're a second class Christian. God doesn't think that. God has chosen to send missionaries and revive the country and raise up preachers and business people who love him through people your age for as long as we can remember. Some of the disciples were your age. And so we are glad to have you here this morning. You're not junior Christians, second class Christians, future Christians, future leaders. You're leaders now. And we are so thankful that you're here. 
You know, I, I loved, when I was doing college ministry, I loved to substitute teach because it's all the fun of getting to hang out with high school kids, but none of the pressure of making them do anything. You, you know, if you don't get the lesson done, who cares? You're gone the next day. You know, it doesn't matter. Um, but, you know, I have a Bible background, so sometimes you get to teach Bible, but I also have a math background, so sometimes you get called in to teach algebra, which is not nearly as fun. And if you've ever been in a high school classroom, one of the questions that you hear all the time is, when am I going to use this? When am I going to apply the Pythagorean theorem to real life? I'll tell you guys, I use that all the time as a math major. Um, actually, the only math I use now is counting, chairs, people, all that. But when am I going to use this? When is this going to be applicable to my life? When am I going to be able to put this into practice? When is this going to make a difference? Why am I spending my time now preparing for something when I don't see how it's going to play out in the future? You can get that sense reading the Sermon on the Mount. We're in the last chapter of the Sermon on the Mount, and what we've been talking about for about five weeks now is the first focus of the Sermon on the Mount, which is righteousness. Righteousness is the theme of the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, some people argue that righteousness is the theme of the Gospel of Matthew, what does it mean to be righteous before God and righteous towards other people? Now, that word is such a churchy word that we say it, we hear it, we're kind of familiar with it, but we don't really know what it means. Being righteous in the Sermon on the Mount starts at the heart level. Righteousness in its core doesn't mean the way you are on the outside until you have done the heart work of figuring out what it means to be righteous on the inside. Being righteous is a wholehearted orientation to God. All of my longings, all of my desires, my aims, the way that I prioritize things is pointed towards God. That's what it means to be righteous. I have removed the obstacles that stand between me and God, whether that's sin or self or idols. I am clearing the road between me and God. That is what it means to live a righteous life. And so Jesus can say things that sounded crazy to the people in the first century, like, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and scribes, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, who could be more righteous than the Pharisees? They outwardly are as good as it gets. But Jesus critiques them. He says, you are like whitewashed tombs clean on the outside, dead on the inside. Righteousness is alive on the inside so that you are living for God on the outside. That's what it means to be righteous. And as you go through the sermon, you get chapter 5 and chapter 6 is all about that internal righteousness. And finally in chapter 7, we start to turn outward and say, if that's the kind of change that's gone on in your heart, what will it look like when it starts to manifest in your life? Chapter 7, the portion that we're covering today is all about how we treat other people if we have a righteousness in our heart. How do we, who have been transformed by God, begin to live this out, not just in our own spiritual practices like praying and fasting and almsgiving, how do we begin to treat people in a way that is different because we are part of the kingdom of God? Now, if you open to Matthew chapter 7, as Nancy just read for us, this first verse hits a square in the face. It's one of the most misunderstood verses in the Bible. Do not judge, lest you be judged. So I want to spend a minute at the beginning of this just talking about 
what does this actually mean? What does it mean to judge? And the Amplified Bible actually does a really good job of clarifying for us because our word judge carries some connotations that really don't help us to understand this passage. So first of all, this verse is used all the time to mean don't ever tell someone that they are wrong. That's what we typically mean when somebody says, don't judge me. That means don't contradict me. Don't tell me I'm doing something wrong. Don't impose your morality on me. If that's what this sermon meant by do not judge, Jesus would be the most schizophrenic teacher you have ever listened to in your life because he has just spent two chapters saying there's a right way to live, there's a wrong way to live. And nobody piped up at the Sermon on the Mount and was like, don't judge me when he says, you've heard it said, don't murder. But I say, if you harbor hatred in your heart, you are guilty of committing murder. <laughs> do not judge cannot mean do not ever make a distinction between what is right and what is wrong. We as Christians do that all the time. Now, we got to do it in the right way, which is getting to the getting to the way that Jesus is teaching us here, but do not judge doesn't mean don't decipher between what is right and what is wrong. Now, <laughs> there's another sense where sometimes you see the phrase, only God can judge me. Have you seen this phrase before on a tattoo or something? <laughs> this, I always chuckle to myself a little bit because on the one hand, you're like, that's the problem. Only God can judge. That, that's actually a worst case scenario. I don't know if you know this, if you have this tattooed on you, if you use this as a life moniker. Only God can judge me is the worst possible thing that could happen to you if you are not with God. You would prefer any human judge over the God of the universe if you haven't been reconciled to God. It would be anybody but God, please judge me, would be a better quote. But there's actually a little kernel of truth in that, though, because if you've been reconciled with God, then truly you can say, I have a clean conscience before God. Only God is my judge. I don't have to find my value, my worth. I don't have to find what builds me up anywhere else because I know the just judge. And I will stand before him, not on my own merits, but on the merits of Christ who paid for my sin, and he will say, not guilty. Amen. So Jesus is playing with something here. He's doing what Jesus often does. He, he is taking our preconceived notions about how we should treat people, and he's turning them on their heads in a way of wisdom. Because our orientation towards other people is typically, we side in the category of thinking the worst of people or thinking the best of people. Being overly judgmental in the way we use the term, critiquing people and imposing things on people, or we just let anything fly. Either we're conflict avoidant or we don't care or we don't know. And we probably find ourselves in one of those categories. In fact, psychologists have identified there are two syndromes at the poles of human experience when it comes to the way we view others and view the world. The first one is called Capgras syndrome. And you see this sometimes in people that have had brain injuries. They suspect everyone. So, so much so that there's an interview with a lady who she thinks that at night somebody comes into her house and changes out all of her clothes for clothes that look exactly the same but are of slightly less quality. 
That is a level of cynicism that we've identified saying that is not a good way to see the world. Now, I can understand people sneaking into your house, trading out your clothes for those that look the same but are slightly smaller. I've actually had that happen <laughs> in my life before. But this, this syndrome is the ultimate scrutiny. Everyone has bad motives. Everyone is on their worst behavior. Everyone is out to get you. Well, there's a poll uh, on the other side called Frigoli syndrome. These people think everyone is their loved one. They, in fact, they did an interview with a lady that was convinced that she had eight different families in eight different cities that were all the same. Because she believes that everyone is the best version of themselves. Everybody is on your team. Everybody is great. Everybody loves you. Everybody is looking out for you. This would be a gullible or a Pollyanna out, outlook on life. And what Jesus is going to do is he's going to say, you can't live your life seeing the worst in everybody, but you can't live your life seeing the best in everybody when that's not what's truly there. What we're going to have in this chapter actually is Jesus traces a third path for us of saying, do not judge harshly. Be generous in the way that you see people. But don't cast your pearls before swine. Be wise in the way that you see people. In another sense, Jesus is calling us to be generous with the way that we appraise people and situations, but good stewards and wise in the way that we engage with people that we come across. In, in the first section, Jesus says, do not judge. And as you're gathering, he, what he means is, do not critique harshly. Do not assume things about people that are not true. He says, because the measure with which you measure, and this is really interesting in the original, it's a play on words, it's almost like a little proverb. The measure that you measure with, you will be measured with. The judgment that you judge with, you will be judged with. Have a sense, like he says in verse 12, of the golden rule, which is we should treat others the way we want to be treated. You remember this from when he gives the Lord's Prayer. If you forgive others, you will be forgiven. And we might put that a different way. If you forgive others, you truly understand what it's like to be forgiven. Here Jesus puts it a little differently. He says, do not judge lest you be judged because with the judgment you judge with, you will be judged. Now, how could you look at somebody else who has a speck in their eye and not notice that you have a log or a plank in your own eye? Jesus begins to give us the remedy for judgment. And it is humility and self-awareness. Notice that what Jesus is saying is not don't judge because you're not in a position to decide what's right and wrong. That's, that's not the remedy. The remedy is you need to be conscious enough of the fact that if you understand your own sin, then you will be able to see clearly in other people's lives. So the problem in this passage is not one of is there right and wrong, it's can you see it? Do you properly understand what's going on? With the disposition of humility, what happens is we become more familiar with our own sin than we are with others. So that once we go through that process, we are more able to compassionately and generously help others with the things that we've been through. Notice, Jesus doesn't say, how can you have a plank in your eye and take the speck out of somebody else's eye? Just focus on the plank. That, that, that's step one, but look at what he does say. He says, Take the speck out of your own eye, in verse 5, then you will see clearly to take the speck 
out of your brother's eye. This is a problem of sight. It's a problem of vision. This is a problem of priority. Look first to your own eye, then you will be helpful with other people who have specks in their eyes. Lacking humility in every area of our life means that we have unavoidable blind spots. In fact, if you see yourself inaccurately, you won't really be able to see anything else accurately. Um, while we're on the psychology track here, I just couldn't help but share this. There's a principle called the Dunning-Kruger effect that some of you have probably heard before. They basically tested all these people in grammar, humor, logic, and they found that the people who tested the lowest were the most confident in their opinions. So if you tested the lowest on this, you had the highest, uh, you answered the highest certainty on this test. In fact, Phil Tetlock, who's a super forecaster, tested 27,000 predictions about the future. And he found that the people who were 80% certain of their predictions were 40% correct. <laughs> and the funny thing is, when they went back to him and told this, most of those people said, well, I was almost correct in my prediction. <laughs> Jesus is making a very similar observation. It's not a matter of whether or not we know what sin is. It's a matter of do we know what our sin is? Do we see clearly? Do we have the humility that says, God, deal with me first? All the way through the Old Testament, you remember one of the themes is judgment starts in the house of God and works its way out. And Jesus says in the New Testament that he is building a new temple in which we are the bricks. We are the house of God now. The Spirit lives in you now. The judgment of God starts here first and works, it way, it works its way out. So Jesus is, is charting a new path of generosity and gentleness in the way that we engage with others. We are aware of what's going on in our hearts. We're aware of the planks in our eye. We have gone through this difficult struggle of putting sin to death in our life, and now we can carefully approach others. We're not seeing the worst in others. We've actually seen the worst in ourselves, which allows us to see clearly what is going on in another person. So Jesus rounds that out with another example that seems totally disconnected. So you've got the plank and you've got the speck, and then all of a sudden in verse 6, do not give dogs what is holy, do not throw your pearls before swine, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. And if you're just reading through the Sermon on the Mount, you think to yourself, is this like Proverbs where they don't necessarily have to go together? Like the, one, I read a commentator this week that said, Matthew must have had a bunch of extra stuff that he remembers Jesus saying that he just loaded in at the end of this chapter. <laughs> I thought, there's no way that's true. These are connected because they're all about how you treat one another. Do not judge unjustly, but also do not cast your pearls before swine. Now, what, is, what does that mean? Well, if the opposite is, uh, be generous with the way that you appraise other people. Jesus is going to come back and say, but also, at the same time, be wise in the way that you deal with other people. Be shrewd when you deal with other people. You remember when Jesus sends out the disciples, he, he says to them, if you go into a town and they reject what you're saying, we might think the Jesus, the, the, the Christ-like thing to do would be stay there and plead with them and do everything you can, and if you just witness to them a little longer, maybe it'll happen. But do you remember what Jesus says? Shake the dust off your feet, go to another town. Keep going. You have limited time, limited resources, limited ability. God is going to call you somewhere else. And it takes wisdom to decide what to do in that situation. Do I stay? Do I go? 
You remember, they, the disciples, as they often do, begin to put this into practice, but in kind of a, you can see where they got this, but kind of in a skewed way, because they go to a town where the people reject them, and they shake the dust on their, off their feet, and James and John, on their way out of town, are talking to Jesus, and they're like, so, so should we call down fire on that town? Is that what we should do? And Jesus names them the sons of thunder for that. The, the guys that have the temper issue. What they're doing is they're showing us that they got the principle right, shake the dust off, but they got the wisdom wrong. They got the wisdom wrong. Jesus here is talking about the ways that we can be discerning and wise and critical in the way that we appraise situations. And when I say the word critical, we think of tearing something down. But I want you to think more of like a movie critic. And what a movie critic is doing, or a literary critic, is they're just making evaluations. They could like the movie, they could hate the movie. They're a critic either way. Most of the time, we think of critic as only negative. But in the Bible, critic is used to say, you are making an appraisal. You're making a judgment. You are weighing a situation, and you're deciding, God, what should I do here? How should I approach this person? What's going to be the best thing to say to them? And there are situations, as Jesus mentions here, he says dogs and pigs, which kind of sound like insults to people. Again, it's like, do not judge, you pig, um, which would be very contradictory. He's saying these things because these were colloquial terms that they would have used for people who are opposed to the gospel, opposed to the kingdom, opposed to the Jews. And he's saying there are moments when you encounter people like that that you actually don't overshare. You actually don't spend more time than you need to. You actually don't invest everything you have because God has something else for you. A good way for us to talk about this in a way that we do is, is to talk about boundaries, like Henry Cloud's book, Boundaries, where he says, casting your pearls before swine is like watering your neighbor's yard and wondering why your grass is dead. So the principle of casting your pearls before swine is you got to know where the boundaries are. You got to know where your yard starts and stops because it's nice of you to water their grass, but yours is the grass that really needs you to water it. So Jesus is telling us, be wise, speak the truth in love. In Proverbs, we see the same principle. Don't sing songs to a heavy heart. When I first got into ministry, I had a wise pastor give me a book with that title, and it's all about congregational care. And the book basically goes into, there are certain things that you could say in a normal circumstance that would be wonderful and helpful, but not in a crisis situation. You know, I, I hope nobody's been in this situation, but sometimes when you're struggling or when you need somebody just to be there and listen, they're giving you a theology lesson. And uh, they're explaining to you why bad things happen. When in that moment, what they're saying is more than likely true, but not helpful. Right? It's, it's true that God will work all things for good, but in the moment, you, you probably just need somebody to sit there with you and cry. It's like Job's friends. They're the ultimate people that get this principle wrong. They say things that are a mix of true and false. You know, Job's friends are not totally mistaken, but they're totally out of place. Job, you know what? You're probably suffering because you've made a lot of mistakes, and it's probably just that God is doing this. Even if that were true, is it helpful? Is it helpful in the moment? Proverbs says, whoever sings songs to a heavy heart is like one who takes off a garment on a cold day, or like putting vinegar with soda. In Proverbs 27, 14, it says, whoever blesses his neighbor with a loud voice early in the morning will be counted as cursing. 
There are times and places, and it takes wisdom to figure out how we can advance the kingdom with other people. Now, the passage goes on, and I want you to see something in verses 7 through 11. This, this passage takes up from, do not cast your pearls before swine, and says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. A lot of times this passage is just plucked out of its context and taught as a passage on prayer. If you pray it, you will get it. You only have to be a Christian for like five minutes to realize that's not the way it works. This passage is all about what we've been talking about. How, given this teaching, can I know how to judge justly and not harshly? How can I know when I'm dealing with someone where it's like, I just need to persevere, I just need to be like the persistent widow that continues praying and pushing and being available in situations where it's like, shake the dust off your feet, move on. How do I know that? Well, what Jesus is teaching us is to live like you need to live in verses 1 through 6, you need to pray like Jesus teaches you to pray in verses 7 through 11. Do you want to know how to wisely deal with people? Do you want to know how to appraise a situation correctly? Do you want to know what God requires of you in the moment with another person? Ask him, and it will be given to you. Seek his will, and you will find it. Knock, and the door will be open to you, because everybody who asks receives. When it comes to this kind of wisdom, James says this is something God always loves to give. If anybody lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously, without finding fault. But if he asks, he's got to believe. It's like when Jesus says, go before them, and God will put the words in your mouth. So we ask God, God, what should I do in this situation? How should I respond to this person? How should I be a faithful witness of Christ to this person that is so hostile to you? How can I get out of judging their motives, God, and love them even when we're in a very difficult, tenuous spot together? Ask and seek and knock, and God will answer that prayer. How often are you going before God on behalf of other people that you engage with? How often are you asking for God's guidance in the moment to know how to respond to something? This is one of the disciplines that will revolutionize your time in the mornings is if you will pre-pray through your day for the encounters that you know you're going to have. Is, God, I I have a meeting at 1 o'clock today, and I know it's going to be tense. Would you help me wisely speak the way you would have me speak? God, I'm going to see that person again. I'm really hoping to avoid them, but now our paths are going to cross. Would you help me? Would you give me the words to say? Would you give me the judgment to know where to start and where to stop? How often are you going on behalf of others and the way you treat them before God? Because this prayer passage comes with a promise. It says, which one of you, if your son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give them a serpent? If you then, who are evil, this is a pretty low bar, if you then, who are evil and sinful, know how to give good gifts to your children, then how much more do you think God knows what you need and longs to give it to you in these situations? How much more will your Father, who's in heaven, give good things to those who ask? Because he is a good Father. We talked a little bit last week about this theme in the Sermon on the Mount, This phrase, your father, is everywhere in this sermon. This is like a family talk that Jesus is giving to his thousands of people who are listening. He says, let your light shine before others 
so that they will give glory to your Father who is in heaven. 5.16. Love your enemies so that you'll be like your Father who is in heaven. 5.45. When you give or when you pray or he gives several examples, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing because your Father in heaven sees you and he will reward you. Last week we talked about, this is easy to miss, but Jesus says, don't worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear because look at the birds and your father feeds the birds. And look at the lilies of the field. Your father clothes the lilies of the field. It's like you would expect them to say their father. It's not the bird's father feeds them. It's not the lily's father clothes them. Your father clothes them. They're not his child, but you are. How much more do you mean to God than them? Your father, your interested, loving, engaged God knows what you need. There's nothing in the world that will revolutionize the way you read this passage than becoming a parent, which we did in the last year. And when you think about your disposition towards your child, and you think, it's not just my duty to provide for my child. That would be a totally terrible parent. It's my joy to provide for my child. I don't have to think on a daily basis like, oh gosh, do I have to feed that baby again? Mostly because I'm not the one doing it. Laura's the one doing it. But I don't think to myself, oh, what a drag. We've got to take care of her again today. No, we think, God, thank you so much for giving us this wonderful child. It's our joy to get to provide for them. Do you, do you know that that's the way God thinks about you? God doesn't wake up every day like, they need something again? Are you kidding me? I've got to listen to their prayers, like the same old prayer again? They can't understand this for the millionth time? No, God every day thinks, I love my child. I love providing. God says over and over in the Old Testament that he loves to be our God and for us to be his people. That's who he is. He didn't have to introduce himself as a father. In fact, he didn't have to create us in families. He didn't have to set any of this up, but what he did was he created us so that we all have a vision through the family of what a greater father in heaven is. Even if you didn't have a good earthly father, God has designed the universe in a way to say there's a little glimpse on earth of the disposition and the love that your heavenly father has for you. And this, this God, this God that we serve, our heavenly father, knows what you need, and he loves to give good gifts to his children. Now, we think he loves to give good gifts to us, like we're the recipient of the gift. He loves to give wisdom. He loves to give provision. He loves to give his love to us. He, he, he loves to give to us in a way that we should never live like we are orphans. But I actually think this passage is focused on something slightly different. I don't think this passage, given the context, is saying he loves to give good gifts to us. I think the context is saying he loves to give good gifts through us. See, this is what makes sense with this passage is if our aim is to love other people and to act wisely and generously and justly with them, and we pray for God to do that, the answer to the prayer often is God is going to give a gift through you in the way that you engage with other people. So you are going to be the vehicle for what God is going to do for another person. Ask him, seek him, knock, so that you can give the gift that he wants you to give to that person. 
If you go through the gifts in the Bible, the spiritual gifts, which this is referring to some of the spiritual gifts, but beyond that, there's no spiritual gift that you can do by yourself. Have you thought about that? If you just go through the spiritual gifts, there's not a single one that is done in solitude, just you and God. There are things like encouragement and prophecy and leadership and words of knowledge and wisdom, all of these things, hospitality, all of these things point to somebody else. God has given you gifts, you gifts, so that you can give them to other people. So our gifts are channeling through us. We pray not just that God would give things to us, which he will, but God help me be the gift to them. Help me to use my gifts that you've given me to build up the church and bless them and see many people come to glorify our Father in heaven. It's amazing what God knows about our engagements and our interactions with other people that we have no idea. This weekend, Kirk and a couple other guys here and I went to a conference in Texas, a Navigators Conference, and it was amazing to see 400 men together who love God and love discipleship and love his word, all singing together and training with a single heartbeat to go get other men and train them to know and love God. It was just awesome. And uh, we had so many great experiences and everything. I was in the bunkhouse with 14 other guys, which was great. Reminded me of living in a fraternity house, which I loved. Um, And we're in a spot like less than the size of this stage with 14 guys. It sounded like a steel chainsaw demo day in there at night. I told Laura that before I left, and she's like, you'll, you'll do your share of contributing, I'm sure. <laughs> well, I did my best. Um, we went to this session with a guy that I got to talk to afterwards, and, and he was talking about the impact that God has through you that you never even know what God is doing. And so he starts telling this story about a guy that was a new believer in his town, and he had an errand that was about an hour away that he was going to, and he just felt God kind of press onto his heart well, why don't you invite him to come with you? Two hours in the car, you get to talk, you got nothing better to do, why don't you take this guy with you? So he does, so he calls him, and he takes him with him on the trip, and they talk, and he's like, it was nothing spectacular, I can't even remember much of what we talked about. He's like, but the crazy thing is, the guy called me and told me, hey, you you don't realize what an impact this had on me, the things that you said, I've thought about it so much since then. He said, the crazy thing is, He called me about two weeks ago, but we went on that trip 50 years ago. 50 years this guy has been thinking about the impact of one flippant decision to take somebody with us. See, your father sees the whole picture. He sees what people around you need. He, he sees what people need to have said or not said. He sees how you might assess something and how you might go about your business serving him. And our role is not to figure all of that out. Our role is to be obedient. When the Spirit leads, when we ask and we seek and we knock and God gives bread, we take it and we break it and we bless people with it. See, the end of the Sermon on the Mount is your righteousness Your relationship with God, the heart that you have that's surrendered to him, is going to be the gift that God gives through you to the people around you. See, the sermon is so wise because it begins with what only we can really do, which is surrender to God. That's it. That's that's all we really have the power to do. And 
over the course of doing that, it takes us to a place where God does what only God can do, which is bring people to himself and grow them and bless them. I'll end with this quote from John Stott in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, to sum all of this up, the command to judge not is not a requirement to be blind, but a plea to be generous. Jesus doesn't tell us to cease being human beings by suspending our critical powers to distinguish us from animals, but to renounce the presumptuous ambition to be God, to let God be God, and to decide that we can be his children. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that we can come to you as Jesus taught us and say that you are our Father. Lord, not just the ruler of the universe, not just the tyrant, not just the person who's in control, not just the commander of everything, but you are our Father. You set the universe up in the way that we come to you and join your family. And Father, some of the hardest part is our brothers and sisters. And so, Lord, we thank you for this teaching this morning from your word that there are situations that are very difficult for us to figure out, but you are with us. Father, we thank you that you haven't just left it up to us and we check back and tell you what we've done. Lord, you are with us every step. If we ask you, you will answer. If we seek you, we will find you. If we knock, you will open the door for us. So, God, I ask this morning that you would give us eyes to see people the way you see them. Father, that we would have the judgment that comes from listening to your Spirit, from being obedient to the promptings that we get from your Spirit, where you see a need and you're meeting it, and we're just a middleman. Father, help us this morning to live in such a way that people will see not us, but our Father. What a great Father that person must have. And they will glorify and walk with you forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning, we're going to take communion together, and one of the things that has been on my heart and our elders' heart is the way that we take communion in our service and the frequency and the place that communion plays in our church. You know, communion isn't just a ritual. It isn't something that you do it, and it's like magic. If you do it the right amount of time and say the right incantations, all of a sudden, good things happen. That's not communion. Communion is a reminder that God has given us, like Jesus said in the wilderness, we don't live on bread alone. We live on every word that comes from the mouth of the Father. And it's rooted in the vision of what we will experience in eternity, which, if you remember in Revelation, is a giant wedding feast of the Lamb. You know, Jesus tells parables about inviting people to a feast, people that are unworthy, people that, you know, nobody else would have invited. The song that we sang this morning, people that could never repay him. He invites to his feast. Communion is a little taste of the feast that we will have with Christ forever. When you come forward and take communion, what we're doing is we're, we're coming to the table of Christ. We're sharing a meal with him. We're renouncing the other ways where we find our strength and our sustenance and our identity, and we're saying, I get it from him. He is my food. He is my drink. His blood has sealed me, renewed me, washed me clean. And every time we take this, it says we are proclaiming his death until he comes again. Have you thought about what that means? Proclaiming his death until he comes again is proclaiming, I have been forgiven. I, 
I am in the family of God. I have the Spirit. I am waiting for a hope that will be true for all of eternity. And as you come forward and eat, you're saying, just like this is a tiny little morsel of a feast, this life is just a tiny little morsel of what God has prepared for us. And so we live for that day. So that's why we would encourage you, if you're not a Christian, not to take communion. Because we'd rather you come to the feast than take this little mini meal. Take Christ. If you're not a Christian today, don't take this. This will do nothing for you. Take Christ. Stay where you are and ask God to forgive you of your sins and ask him to bring you into his family. Pray with somebody else. Reach out to somebody. Start to follow him and then take this meal. Then it'll mean something. Then it'll be what what Christ gave to his disciples, which is to say, as often as you do this, it will mean you're looking for what's going to happen in the end if you're part of my family. So the way that we're going to do communion, and we're going to evolve on this a little bit as, as we go the next couple of months. The way we're going to take it this morning is Grant and Kirk are going to come forward, and they're going to hold the elements. And they're going to say something. They'll decide what to say, but something like this is the body of Christ, which is broken for you. This is the blood of Christ, which was shed for you. It's like they are waiting on us at the table of the Lord. So it's important, and churches do this differently, but it's important to us that you stand up, you come forward, and you receive it like we're coming to the Lord, to his table, to his banquet. But here's the other thing. We want you to have a space to respond to the word that's been preached, to the worship that we've sung together. And so as you get up and come forward, this, this is the beginning of a time of response. Communion is the first step to responding to God. And so when you take the elements and you go back to your seats, just stand there and begin to respond. Today, a good response would be, God, is there some gift that you want me to give to another person? Is there some way that you're going to use me where I'm going to need your words and your wisdom this week? God, could you impress on my heart what I might take from this and turn to give to someone else? And if that means you need to go talk to somebody or you see somebody across the room, especially we just covered the passage where Jesus says, if you're offering your gift at the altar, if you're taking communion, and you know that you have something against somebody, somebody has something against you, go make it right. So we tend to take it and then stand rigidly in our seats like this. Like, you know, if we didn't, it would be taking it unjustly. Communion should feel more like a family meal than awake, which is how it sometimes feels. Christ is alive. He's in our midst. He gives us his spirit. And we've been called to give the gifts that we've been given to others. This is the time to do it. So as we stand and as, as Mars leads us, come forward, we'll take the elements, go back to your seat, respond in the way that you need to. I'll come back up and we'll take the elements together here in about five minutes.